You know, we're now running into the eighth month since, since we stopped in-person gatherings when the pandemic began. And though it seems that vaccines are around the corner, it's going to take time for those to, to be distributed widely enough for life to return to some new normal. And though deaths are not rising as quickly as before, rapidly rising cases are causing us to rethink what it, how we are to respond. Friday had 185,000 new, new cases, and we're now over 245,000 deaths in this nation. We grieve how this world has changed. We also grieve how being a faith community has changed and what it means to worship together. And I want to thank the team of volunteers that you don't see on the screen every week that has made it possible for us to continue gathering virtually through this pandemic. But it's still not quite the same. You know, I don't get to hear your voices in this room when we sing together. I don't get to see your smiles and your tears when we hear community celebrations and concerns. I don't get to enjoy all the flavors and smells of our monthly potluck meals. And I don't get to pray for you and, and bless you as you come forward to receive communion. I don't get to see all your children grow up. And most of all, I don't get to be built up by the gifts that you have that help me see God more clearly. You know, I think we've been able to make things work for us to sing and to pray and to hear God's word together. But I've also lamented at how the fundamental part of being a Christian faith community is missing right now. We're not able to build each other up in faith and in good deeds or to express worship of God and, uh, and, and love for one another in the same way as it's possible when we gather together in person. You know, last week we looked at walking in the way of love in relationships with one another from 1 Corinthians 13. And this week in chapter 14, we're going to look at how to walk in the way of love in a worship gathering, in a worship service. And from this text, we learn three things. There's a goal, the qualities, and the fruits of loving worship. The goal, the qualities, and the fruits of loving worship. In this chapter, Paul turns his attention to comparing two primary speech gifts of the Spirit, tongues and prophecy. The gift of tongues is a gift of the Spirit where the recipient speaks out loud in a language that is unknown to them. Prophecy is also a gift of the Spirit where the recipient receives a word from the Lord, but in a language known to the hearers. Now, prophetic speaking may be an extemporaneous word inspired in the moment, unknown to the speaker ahead of time, or it could be an interpretation of someone else who has spoken in tongues. But more often than not, it's a word right for, from God prepared ahead of time like a sermon or a teaching that speaks to the immediate concerns of the congregation. Now, Paul affirms in this chapter that both gifts are desirable and expected in the gatherings of God's people, but he privileges prophecy over tongues for one primary reason, because of the goal of a public worship gathering. Now, if you scan the chapter, and you'll see, you get a picture of the kind of goal that, that what Paul sees as a goal. He's, in verse 3, he speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. In verse 4, it says to edify the church. Verse 5, so that the church may be edified. Verse 6, what good will, will I, that's my gift, be to you? In verse 12, he encourages them to excel in the gifts that may build up the church. Verse 17, but no one else is edified. Verse 26, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. 
Do you see the goal here? The goal when we gather for worship is so that people may be built up by God's people exercising the gifts of the Spirit. Where tongues build up the individual, prophecy builds up the gathered people of God. Both are required. Both are expected. And in fact, Paul says later in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Placing prophecy above tongues in, public worship, in a public worship service is not a reflection of its value and worth, but it's a reflection of its role in the context that they are in. And note here that Paul isn't speaking just to leaders. He's speaking to everyone who gathers in the service. The assumption here is that every follower of Christ who gathers in a worship service has the opportunity to exercise their spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. Now, whether we gather in person or in our current online church format, the elders desire for every one of you to still contribute in ways that we need to hear to build us up. So be a contributor, not a consumer. You know, though our virtual format is primarily experienced in one direction, it doesn't mean that you can't pass a word to the elders through email at elders at wcfchurch.org, or maybe you can drop a note in the YouTube chat. You know, many of us are intelligent and gifted and articulate, but articulating these spiritual gifts of speech doesn't depend on your natural abilities. They are born of the Spirit as a word that the church needs to hear. Now, perhaps it might be a message saying something like this. You know, as we're worshiping today, a particular verse comes to mind, and you, and you say, I think this might be a verse that the church needs to hear. Or it may be an image that you receive in the midst of our worship or listening or prayer. Or maybe uh, a timely word that someone else in the church needs to hear. And something you can say is like, you know, you, we're, we're all learning how to do this and hearing from the Holy Spirit. So you could something, say something like this. I think the Lord is saying this to the church. We're all fallible, but we're all filled with the Holy Spirit when we put our trust in Jesus. The point is here is that WCF needs to hear from you, how God is speaking to you for this church. And this is the fundamental value of our faith community. When we are silent or when we don't participate, the whole church misses out on the opportunity to be built up. Now turn to someone you're with or message them if you're not with them right now and say, I want to talk, walk in the way of worship. Turn and say that to someone next to you and say, I want to be a contributor, not a consumer. You know, now that we know the goal is to build up, this leads to the qualities of walking in loving worship. You know, this week I had a chance to be on a Zoom call with the pastor of the Oakland Church that Vice President-elect Kamala Harris grew up in. He spoke of how the care of a loving neighbor brought Kamala and her sister Maya to the church and how Kamala acknowledges the importance of her Christian faith to inform and uphold her public service. But we don't hear too many of these kinds of stories. We live in a culture that tends to privatize our spirituality. We look to spirituality as a source of internal comfort and strength, which of course it is. And in some ways, there's wisdom because people make assumptions about your faith based on what they hear in the news or based on what they fr their friends talk about. But we often turn our spirituality and faith into something merely personal. We go to church to be encouraged. We attend a small group to get recharged in community with others who share similar faith convictions. 
And perhaps we might listen to music at one church and listen to a sermon at another church and we use our gifts in another setting. But the life of the Corinthian church indicates that our faith isn't merely experienced privately, even when we gather together. It's meant to be demonstrated publicly in a specific faith community, one perhaps like WCF or another community that you're a part of. Our faith is both private and public. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to wave flags on your lawn or on the back of your truck or as a bumper sticker on your car. But in the gathering of Jesus' followers, our faith is meant to be lived out by exercising our spiritual gifts. In verse 4, Paul says, Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Paul distinguishes the gift of tongues as building up your own faith. And prophecy builds up the church. And as Christ followers, we are called to do both. We're called to find practices that nurture our faith privately, like speaking in tongues, or reading scripture, or doing contemplative prayer and seeking spiritual direction. Paul commends us to exercise our faith publicly as well, though, especially in a gathered worship service. Attending our worship, Sunday worship services is not just a combination of attending a musical concert that happens to sing holy lyrics and listening to a spiritual TED Talk. Our Sunday worship services are gatherings of people who have encountered the reality of Jesus. And because of Jesus, we come to worship God with an expectation, not, not only to receive, but to contribute with the gifts of the Spirit granted to one another as followers of Christ. For Paul, another key quality of how to love others, as he says in verse 14 and 15, is in worship is intelligibility and meaning or relevance to the hearer. Now, there are a variety of hearers in the Corinthian church. In the charismatic church that I grew up in, we often would sing in the spirit, that sing and pray in tongues together at the same time, out loud, not just in your brain. So imagine like a Mennonite hymn sing, if you come from a Mennonite background, but with the chaotic unity and beauty of many tongues and melodies sung at the same time. Yet for Paul, the clear articulation of God's word is more important in a public worship gathering. Why is that? In verse 16, he talks about how intelligible and meaningful speech is important for believers to be built up in their faith, but also for other kinds of people that Paul expected to be present in their services. In this chapter, Paul uses four different terms for, uh, or kinds of people that he expects. One, the first one is a foreigner, which is, in the Greek is heteros. It's found in verse tw uh, 21 when he quotes Isaiah. It speaks of someone who, uh, who is unknown, who has an unknown language or a for part of a foreign culture, or maybe they're part of a subculture that uses a different idioms and accents that you're not used to. Then there's another category is an unbeliever, apistos which is an unbelieving Greek or a non-Christian Jew in verse 24. Then in verse 23 and 24, oh no, and then he refers to believers, which are pistos, which is a confessing Christian. And finally, there's the fourth category, which is an inquirer or an outsider. In the Greek, it's idiotes, which we get the word idiot, but it's not used in a pejorative sense here. In verse 23 and 24, when Paul uses this, it's used to refer to a, someone who believes or is open to to Jesus, but has not received any of the spiritual gifts. They're ignorant to them. They're seeking God. 
These inquirers and seekers are in the service. They're willing to participate because they're willing, they're open to the reality of Jesus. They're willing to say, amen. That's what Paul is saying there. They're willing to say amen to what's going on, but speaking in tongues doesn't give them a chance to do so because they don't know what you're saying. And though you might give thanks through speaking in tongues, the outsider or the other person is not built up. Intelligibility and meaning are important. Paul articulates the importance of intelligibility and meaningful speech again in verse 9 to 11. You know, when Julie and I had a chance to stay in London for a few days during a holiday, one of the joys of, was noticing all sorts of languages spoken on the street. Not only did we hear English, English, but with different accents of English, we heard lots of Russian, French, Spanish, Arabic, Japanese, and Mandarin Chinese. I'll stop now. Corinth, Corinth was a similar cacophony of intelligible languages. And temple worship of pagan gods also involved ecstatic expressions of language, like the gift of tongues that the Corinthian Christians might have heard in their services. And for Paul, a public worship service, in a public worship service, unknown or foreign language divided people. The person hearing knows that the person is not one of them. Hence, the importance of speaking with intelligibility and meaning in the service. You know, even as Christians, we might all speak English, but we can also be so in our Christian world that our vocabulary might sound like a different language to those unfamiliar with our faith. So at WCF, we try to be aware of Christian lingo that may be foreign to someone joining our services. We might be tempted to use rich and theological or academic language because we value the clarity of that vocabulary but it is foreign to most people walking in off the street or listening online. You know, many of you know that our church is conscious of our use of gendered pronouns in our lyrics and prayers. And while we seek to remain faithful to how God has been revealed to us in Scripture through the titles and pronouns used there, we don't also want to limit our imagination of how God is portrayed or over-rely on certain images of God that may be an obstacle for those who may be exploring the Christian faith. Now, these are all ways that we consider how to walk in the way of love as a worshiping community. Thinking not only of ourselves and what we like, but thinking consciously of those who might be joining us that may not have the same background or vocabulary, or perhaps even the same language. And if you're listening today and you're confused about something that we do as a faith community, please let us know by emailing the elders at elders at wcfchurch.org. We love to hear from you. Because hearing from you helps us know how we can love and care for all who might cross paths with us. We value your presence and your participation. Your questions and your seeking are something that we want to honor and affirm. Now, if you are astute and have been reading ahead in this chapter, you may wonder about one particular section here in verse 34 and 35, which we didn't read aloud. And if we didn't read aloud, it's not because we want to avoid it. But it's a difficult verse where Paul addresses how certain women should be silent in worship services. Now, while it's immediately jarring as we read this, consider what we have been learning about Paul so far. In chapter 11, Paul addresses female and male leaders teaching and praying in the worship service. And here in chapter 14, Paul is addressing female and male worshipers, not just leaders, participating in the worship service. 
As we've been learning in this series, that women were affirmed and deemed important and even authoritative in the life of the early church cannot be disputed. Paul relied and trusted, relied on and trusted women to lead and to teach in the churches that he started. Now in verse 34 and 35, it's set in this final section of chapter 14, where Paul is addressing the whole church about when to speak and when to be silent so that the whole church can be built up. Here, Paul is not talking about all women in the church to be silent, but wives whose husbands, believing husbands, are also participating regularly in the church. Now, there's a number of factors, cultural factors at play here that we need to be aware of. It was common in their time for men and women to sit separately in the synagogue, segregated by a divider down the middle. Now, you may recall that nearly half of Corinth was slaves. Most women were not formally educated. Corinth was a cosmopolitan city where common Greek was spoken on the streets, but Latin was inscribed on most signage. Formal education was conducted in classical Greek, and Jews would speak Aramaic, but they would read and write, and those who could read and write would read and write in Hebrew. So you have all these languages going on. Now, in Middle Eastern culture is, was and still is very expressive orally. And all of these factors combined make it likely that the wives were speaking over the divider to ask their husbands to clarify what was being taught, disrupting others in the service. And Paul talks about the disgrace in verse 35. It's not the disgrace because the speaker is a woman or that speaking publicly itself is morally wrong. Instead, the disgrace or shame is related to etiquette and inappropriateness, much like it is disgraceful to discuss bodily functions when you first meet someone in a, in a social setting. Paul suggests that wives wait. They can wait till they get home because their husbands can clarify what they heard rather than disrupting the service for others. And there's one more difficult phrase here but about saying how they must be in submission. What does Paul mean? And to submit to whom? If we read the context clearly, Paul intends this to mean submitted to leadership of the worship service, and that leadership includes both women and men prophets. Now, this makes sense in the context of this last section, verses 26 to 36, when Paul's addressing these groups of people who are disturbing worship. He was talking to male and female prophets, saying, don't all talk at once. Be silent in the church. He was talking to male and female speakers in tongues, saying, if there's no interpreter, be silent. And he's speaking to married women with Christian husbands attending, saying, be silent in the church because you can ask your husbands when you get home. In other words, to everyone, be silent when it disturbs worship. Paul is not telling female prophets in chapter 11 to stop prophesying. This is the way to walk in love in get, when we're gathered in worship. One, use your gifts in private and in public in the worship service. Two, use them in ways that build others up with intelligibility and meaning. And three, be respectful and silent when the worship services aren't so that the worship services aren't distracting for those new in faith. And finally, we arrive at the fruits of loving worship. Again, keep in mind that this loving worship is, is where the gifts of the Spirit are exercised, not just natural gifts and abilities. You know, many of us have natural gifts and abilities that are the result of us being made in God's image. That's why we need deacons and trustees of WCF who are good at administration and accounting, or like our music team today, 
you know, with their gifts, their musical skills to lead us in, in worship. But in this chapter, Paul is encouraging all to exercise gifts granted by the Holy Spirit to build up the faith of the gathered church. The following fruits of loving worship, when that happens, will be evident. Read here. Take a look at verse 30, uh, 24 and 25, where Paul says, But if in, an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, wait, am I reading? Yeah. Uh, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What happens when the fruits of, the, of, the, of, of worship hap, uh, take place? People are convicted of sin and brought under judgment. Now, we're afraid of that word, but the judgment and conviction comes by a prophetic word, not by worshipers giving side-eye to one another. The Holy Spirit moves in the interior world of feelings and thoughts to bring conviction of sin and confession of truth as they hear the word of God spoken. And then, secondly, they're called into account. Through the proclaimed word, we are led to review our commitments and our actions. We begin to take responsibility for them and consider a different way of acting and behaving. And as we're about to go to the confession, uh, to uh, the communion table, we have an opportunity to confess those things in our hearts. Third, unbelievers' hearts are disclosed. Our inner life is exposed. Those things that where we don't believe God to be good in, those things that we have placed idols before God is more important than trusting God. Those false hopes, those are the when the prophetic word is given, that penetrates and exposes dark corners of our hearts and minds. New Testament commentator Gordon Feese writes about this particular section saying, no wonder the Corinthians preferred tongues. It gave, not only gave them a sense of being more spiritual, but it was safer because no one else could dispute what was going on in your heart. Fourth, the humble person will bow down before God and worship him. You know, when... when God is moving in our midst. Their people surrender and worship God. People begin submitting to God's will. And lastly, people will say that God is really among you. You know, for Jews and Greeks, they had a God who lived in a house or a temple. And so if you wanted to draw close to God, you would need to go to his or her house or their temple. But Paul says, you are now God's temple. God's spirit dwells within you. In public worship, the witness of prophetic preaching and teaching brings this to be. An unbeliever and an inquirer will also discover this reality. You know, when Jesus' followers gather to worship and walk in this way of love, these are the results. They all participate and lives are changed. Paul didn't see the Corinthian church as passive observers, but as active participants in this unfolding drama. They were actors led and directed by the Spirit of God. There was no distinction between clergy or the people you know, officially leading and laity, the people in, sitting in the pews. Everyone could participate according to their spiritual gifts. And if that is how Paul expected the Corinthian church to be built up, I wonder what it would look like for WCF to be built up in the same way. When we come to be contributors and not just consumers, things happen. God is worshipped. People's lives change. People testify and say that, I see that God is working amongst us. 
This is my prayer and the prayer of many here. And this is all possible, not because you are theologically trained or because you're eloquent in speech or because you're a natural-born leader, but because you, as a follower of Christ, are filled with the Holy Spirit. So take heart, step out, and see God speak through you to the glorious praise of our God. Amen.